3: Before we jump in, we must warn you this episode contains explicit content, such as sexual abuse, that may be disturbing to some people. Listener discretion is advised. Also, if this is the first time you're listening to Sacred Scandal, everything will make a lot more sense if you start with episode one. It's a brisk California December day, 2019 and Sochil Martin must exit the hotel without being seen. She peers out the window to make sure no one is there, and then, as she dashes through the parking lot towards her car, kid in tow, she double-checks. And double-checks. This vigilant routine is her new reality, constantly hiding from people and watching her back everywhere she goes. She's always ready, armed with pepper spray and the local police department on speed dial. But none of this prepares her for what happens next. As she walks towards her car with her daughter, she sees a familiar face. Panicked, Sochil grabs her little girl and starts running. She's known this man since childhood. He is a henchman for La Luz del Mundo, known as the Enforcer. He is so close that Sochil can hear him say, Yes, she's here. I can see her. She's moving so fast she can't even feel her legs. Safely inside, Sochil calls the San Diego police. Two minutes later, the San Diego PD arrive, but the enforcer has already vanished. Thanks to La Luz del Mundo, or LLDM for short, Sochil and her family had spent the last few months quietly moving from one hotel to the next, after being forced to leave their home in Mexico. Her decision to help U.S. authorities bring down Nason Joaquin Garcia is what put her family in serious danger.
2: On Monday night, my office arrested Nason Joaquin
1: Garcia.
3: Even from inside a jail cell, Nason could play with people's lives. It was following his wishes that LLDM's hundreds of pastors all over the U.S. and Mexico ordered their congregation to harass Sochil Martin and her family. Here's Sochil herself describing the rumors LLDM spread about her.
4: He used a platform, a national platform, to tell the people of the congregation, you see this woman over here? She's the one that you're going to blame for the apostle being in jail, and she's the one that if you see on the street, she's the one that you harass. It's her fault.
3: After Nason's arrest on June the 3rd, 2019, LLDM's official spokesperson, Silem Garcia, went on Mexico's 24 hour news station, Milenio, to defend the apostle's innocence against Suchil's
5: claims. Okay. On national
3: television, Silem Garcia was careful not to name Suchil Martin. He claimed the church did not know who this woman was and said she was selling the apostle out for a big payoff from a documentary journalist. When pressed by Milenio's anchor, Garcia restate his claim, allegedly, he says, allegedly, and repeats that the church is completely unaware of who she is.
5: La Fiscalía no ha presentado los nombres de las cuatro supuestas víctimas mm-hmm. y tampoco ha presentado los nombres
3: But the truth was, Garcia and LLDM knew perfectly well who this woman was, and so did the apostle, intimately. LLDM had been tracking Sochil and her family's every move, filming and photographing them everywhere they went. Yelling and harassing them in public, sending threatening messages, vandalizing their property, slashing her car tires. They even stoned her pets. The family went into witness protection after two LLEM agents dressed as policemen broke into Suchil's home while her daughter was playing in the living room. Suchil was moving from one place to another to keep her family safe, but against millions of angry believers convinced she was to blame for Nason's imprisonment, she had nowhere to hide. I'm Roberta Garza, and you're listening to Sacred Scandal, Season 2. This is Episode 4, The Apostle's Obsession. In this episode, we delve into the story of Sochil Martin, one of the survivors closest to Nason and the first woman to speak up publicly about the Church and the Apostle's many abuses. She did this despite knowing the consequences, that she might never have a normal life again. Growing up in East Los Angeles in the 1990s, there were moments when Sasha's life seemed almost normal, like singing along to the radio
4: with her aunt. I'd be in the car with my aunt, and we'd be listening to a, a romantic song of Christian Castro, or uh, um, I mean, the, or like the Bee Gees, uh, some really beautiful song from the 70s about love.
3: There was one special song her aunt loved.
4: I just called to say I love you.
3: For Swatchell's aunt, Stevie Wonder's I Just Called to Say I Love You was a song about, for, and dedicated to the Apostle Samuel. Her aunt and a group of women devotees in Los Angeles would send Samuel tender voicemails of these 70s love songs. And sometimes, if they were lucky, they would get a response.
4: He would say, do you really miss me? Okay, I'm there on the weekend or something.
3: If the Apostle Samuel told his Los Angeles harem that he was coming, Sochil remembers a flurry of activity, excitement, preparations. And Sochil would think,
4: Oh my God, that's, that's going to be my life, just like my mom, just like my aunt, right? And like all of this fun, you know, oh, the butterflies in your tummy. Sochil was born and raised
3: in an LDM family. Growing up, pictures of the apostle were all over her house. Her aunt taught her to kiss them before bed.
4: Samuel was never a monster to me. I, I loved him. I adored. He was. He was not just the apostle of Jesus Christ. He was like the founder of my family.
3: Her grandmother joined in the 1940s, finding safety from her husband's abuse in the church's community. It was only natural that when the time came, Suchu's grandmother gifted her daughters. Xochitl's aunt and her mother, to the Apostle Samuel, a tradition that continued with Xochitl.
4: I'm being raised by my aunt who was also abused by him. You know, and, and she's teaching me only what she knew and what she was raised to believe.
3: Gifting or offering up your child can mean many things, but in La Luz del Mundo, it most often means sexual services. For Xochitl's mom and aunt, it meant tasks like performing oral sex, preparing his bath, and particularly bringing him more younger girls and making sure they were convinced it was all a huge blessing. We can't say for sure how Suchil's mom felt about this, but what we do know is that when Suchil was barely a toddler, her mom became addicted to drugs and alcohol and eventually institutionalized.
4: My mom was like something we just, nobody would talk about.
3: So Suchil was raised by her aunt, the same aunt who sent the Apostle voice messages of I just called to say I love you.
4: My mom didn't stand a chance. I didn't stand a chance.
3: Sochil, her mother and her aunt were what's known in the church as unconditionals. We mentioned them in the last episode. Unconditionals pledged themselves to serve the Apostle for life in any way he wanted, without questions.
4: I am born and raised to believe that there is no sin when it comes to the apostle of Jesus Christ because saying that he sins is saying that God sins and God does not sin. I was trained, boop, as soon as you think that there's something wrong or sin, I just turn my brain off. Like if you go there, Sochil, you're condemned for all eternity. Like you cannot let your mind go and think, not even for a millisecond, that the apostle of Jesus Christ is wrong or that he is doing something sick or wrong before God because that's going against God that's like saying god you piece of shit like what are you doing it's just as bad
3: such a stern came after her 10th birthday her aunt was ordered by the apostle samuel to bring the little girl to him
4: and so here i am a little girl thinking well the servant of god's not mad because he didn't seem he didn't seem mad when he saw me with my clothes off In fact, he likes it, and it makes him smile, and he does look happy. It's very normal, this culture of rape and child abuse and pedophilia in the light of the world.
3: During her teenage years, such as responsibilities included rubbing Samuel's feet, giving him massages, and even dancing for him, often naked. Many of her friends also did it, and few questioned it. And when they did... The apostles' groomers, older women, known as the Vestals, would make sure they understood how much of a blessing it was, how the girls should tell no one about it, and how they and their whole family would roast in hell if they did. A few years later, the apostle Samuel assigned Sochil a new task, to take care of his son, Nason. At the time, Nason was 40 years old, and Sochil was still in high
4: school. He trusted me so much with his son's life, and his son needed somebody like me to love him. And, you know, in the beginning it was okay, like, yeah, okay, it's fine, Sochil. But for so long, I was an object. I was a thing that was meant to keep Nason happy and quiet and, and calm, because he was the next apostle in line.
3: The abuse began gradually. Sochil worked for the church's PR firm, Berea International and this meant helping Nasson with his radio broadcasts late into the night in his office. She often worked over 30 hours a week, all while attending high school, all unpaid. And during their time working together, Nasson would often talk to the teenage Sochil about how unhappy he was in his marriage, lamenting that his wife didn't love him properly. He would tell her no one loved him, Sochil would respond that of course she loved him. He was the apostle's son, after all. And Nason would reply, If you love me, then why don't you kiss me? Why don't you hug me? And then, wanting to obey Prince Nason,
4: Sochil, of course, would. I was essentially his first concubine. There was much more. It was much more direct with him. So he knew my every move, every day.
3: Sochil's aunt helped Nasson keep track
4: of her. They 100% always knew what I was doing, where I was going, who I would speak to.
3: At one point, Sochil ran away to San Jose to live with a relative there. But Nasson and the church were inescapable. She was quickly brought back to L.A. and to the Apostle. The abuse only escalated from there. He became arrogant and hurtful asking for hardcore sexual favors. BDSM dungeons and threesomes quickly escalated to the grooming of very young girls and sexual acts with animals. She managed to mostly avoid the worst acts, but resistance came with a price tag. On one occasion, Nason presented her with a boy, naked and half-conscious. A black mask covered his face. Nason wanted to record a sexual act between Sochil and the boy. When she refused... Nasson beat her so hard, she was unable to walk for several days.
4: And as time goes by, he physically took everybody in my life away from me and completely isolated me from everybody, including my family.
3: Sochel didn't just endure physical abuse, she also experienced financial abuse. She dreamt of studying film after graduating high school.
4: I was lucky enough to get accepted to NYU And it was so awesome. I was so excited. But Nason said no.
3: Nason wanted her to stay in Los Angeles, to continue working for the PR firm. Instead of film school in New York, he told her to study communications at California State University. And she did. But she was only able to study for one year. She had secured a student loan, but she'd been forced to turn the loan over to the church. Without it, she could not afford to continue her education. So Sachil dropped out. She settled into working full-time at the church's PR firm, Berea International, where she could at least practice her film skills, producing shiny marketing videos for the church. This meant Nason officially became her direct boss. He was now involved in every aspect of her life.
4: He's my boss, he's my pastor, he's my dad, he's my everything, right? So gradually, my abuser becomes the closest thing in my life.
3: In time, Sochil would start to separate Nason, the man, from Nason, the apostle.
4: I essentially had nothing but him. And so I started to be very angry at him subconsciously. And I started to separate the idea between him being the servant of God's son and him being my... my Not my predator. I didn't see him as my predator, but I did start to see him as the sole reason why I was so unhappy. But there was nothing I could do about it.
3: It would be many more years before Sochil would free herself from him. The abuse would continue and worsen. But the seeds of doubt were planted, and fate was about to intervene. More on that after the break.
0: To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: In her early 20s,
3: Sochel felt like nothing was going right. She was working full-time, mostly unpaid, at the church's PR firm. Nasson kept a firm grip on her and her life. She experienced severe bouts of anxiety and depression. Until one day, during a work trip, things began to change. The night before, Sochil received a call from Nason.
4: He tells me that he needs me in Ensenada the following morning. So Sochil hops into a caravan with other
3: producers working for Berea. They travel the four hours between L.A. and Baja California. And when they get there...
4: The first person to open the door was Sharim. I see Sharim, and I just thought he was like the most handsome guy in the world. You know, I got butterflies in my stomach.
3: And Sharim noticed Sochil too.
4: And yeah, he saw me, and uh, that whole weekend we were just looking at each other back and forth.
3: Sharim Guzman was handsome, ambitious, and well-respected within the church. As LLDM political liaison in Ensenada, he was active in community affairs, serving as spokesman for the church before local governments and businesses. Towards Sochi, he was caring, composed, and tender. The sparks were mutual, but with Nasona, the whole LLDM cohort, close by, the two lovebirds could mostly only glance at each other.
4: I wasn't allowed to talk to him. I wasn't allowed to give him my personal information because I was limited to the people I had on my phone uh, because I was monitored by Nason and um, my aunt. And so, yeah, he asked for my phone number, and I said I couldn't <laughs> give it to him. Uh, he thought it was kind of weird, but um, he, he was totally patient. And I'm like, but can we, like, exchange emails or messenger accounts? And so that's how we started uh, to get in contact.
3: At the time, Sharim lived in Ensenada, Mexico, while Sochi lived in Los Angeles. So they started a clandestine, long-distance love affair.
4: And um, we sort of fell in love through the Internet.
3: <laughs> Over the next months, Sochil and Sharim texted and messaged one another. While her secret relationship with Sharim deepened, her life with Nason was getting worse and worse. She felt like she was living in hell. Nason became increasingly aggressive, beating Sochi during sex, sometimes brutally. And their affair was becoming more public and more brazen. Church members gossiped about Sochi, disparaging her for sleeping with a married man. As a result, Nason began humiliating Sochi in public, taking away blessings from her during church gatherings and openly pointing out even her smallest mistakes. Again, Sochil ran away. And again, she was forced back by church members under Nasson's orders. In the meantime, Samuel was preparing Nasson to take over for him as head of LLDM. Since Nasson was not yet the apostle, his reputation had to be protected. And Samuel became increasingly concerned that Nasson's obsession and openly aggressive behavior with sochil would shake the church's foundations. It could place Nason's future at risk. So, in 2010, Samuel decided to separate the two. He sent Nasson to a ministry far away from Los Angeles and told Sochil that she had a month to get married, and that he had already selected her husband. Sochil asked for more time and to choose her own husband. The apostle granted her six months, and agreed that Sochil could marry the man she wanted. Shut him. And so the two lovers were married in the church. Sochil moved to Ensenada with her new husband, and a year later, she gave birth to a little girl. At 24, Sochil was finally free from Nason. They were still part of the church,
4: but life was mostly good. It really made me feel like I had a normal life within the cult.
3: Then, Four years later, the Apostle Samuel passed away. And Sochil's heart sank. Not only because she felt grief for the Apostle, but also because Nason would become the absolute leader of LLDM, the new Apostle in his father's place.
4: There was a part of me that knew what was coming. There was a big part of me that knew what was coming, and I was terrified.
3: More on that in a minute.
2: uh, my
0: name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up.
2: Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut. I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say. Anything. Listen to Cold Blooded: The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: With Samuel dead, Nasson ascended as the new leader of La Luz del Mundo. Sochil knew Nasson well, and she had a gut feeling. That with so much power he would become unhinged.
4: And um it was very dark. It got very dark very fast.
3: In early 2015, a year after Nason became the Apostle of God, he called Sochil back to Guadalajara. She was brought to Nason's office and greeted by Azalia Rangel Melendez, who Sochil recognized as Nasson's chief assistant and groomer in Mexico. Azalia told her. Nasson had requested a private audience with her. And once the door closed behind her.
4: He assaulted me and I I, I, I couldn't recover for months. Nasson
3: raped Sochil right over his desk and videotaped it. From now on, she was to continue her sexual servitude to him and also help him find and groom new young girls for his pleasure.
4: That's when I broke uh, emotionally and psychologically, and in so many ways tried to end my life.
3: Sochil endured Nason's rapes and abuse for months, afraid of what he might do to her family or to her if she resisted. She was spending many months out of the year in Guadalajara, away from Sharim and their young daughter. So she submitted and played along. When she was away from Nason, she sent him affectionate messages pretending to be his girlfriend. When she refused to comply, she was beaten. She tried to commit suicide. Worried about his wife and confused by her suicide attempt, Sochil's husband, Sharim, picked up her phone when it buzzed with an incoming message. He found racing messages and pictures between Sochil and the apostle. Sharim was stunned, and he immediately confronted Sochil about it.
4: I was sort of on the verge of like, oh, finally, he knows. He started calling him a son of a bitch. He started calling him a disgusting piece of shit. And me, I'm like, stop talking, stop talking like that about the servant of God. Don't say that. It was like, I don't want my husband to go to hell.
3: Sochil was relieved that she didn't have to hide the truth from Sharim anymore. But she was scared for him. She was worried about Nason's reaction the violence he was capable of. And there was everything she had learned as a young girl, that speaking ill of the apostle would damn her husband to hell.
4: I just turned my brain off. Like, if you go there, Sochil, you're condemned for all eternity. Like, you cannot let your mind go and think, not even for a millisecond, that the apostle of Jesus Christ is wrong or that he is doing something sick or wrong before God, because that's going against God.
3: Instead of questioning the abuse, she found herself questioning her husband's faith.
4: The way Shereem acted for me was like, "Uh uh-oh, you see, that's why you weren't allowed to know, because your faith is just not there. You're not getting it. And even after that happened, I still went to church. I still went to church. And Shireen was like, okay, I guess you can go, but my daughter, my daughter never steps foot in that church again.
3: So Sochil kept going to church, while Sharim did not. Words started to get out about Sharim not being in attendance, and people started gossiping. And the biggest elephant in the room was Sochil and her son's not so secret affair. Sochil didn't see the big deal. Because of her conditioning, she did not yet think this was abuse. Such a thought that if Nassan just reached out, everything would be fine. And she blamed herself.
4: Because it was essentially my fault that Sharim saw the messages. And this whole time I'm thinking, if I would have been more careful. And um, even the minister's wife told me, I should kill you for being so careless. And at that moment, I'm thinking, it is my fault. Like, I'm so stupid. And deep down inside, I kind of wanted it all just to be over. So I was kind of, like, telling everybody in my head, like, why is everybody making such a fucking big deal? Like, it's okay. Like, Sharim's going to understand in the end. If we just talk to him, if the servant of God just talks to him, then everything is going to be okay.
3: Sochil hoped Nasson would talk to them and explain how it was all a blessing. Smooth things over with Sharim. But he never did. Instead, he completely cuts her off.
4: And I'm like... Why doesn't he just talk to us? Why doesn't he just, you know, fly us over to Guadalajara? We could talk about this, and now Sharim is going to understand that it's a blessing, it's not bad. Or it's not abuse the way he's seeing it.
3: Sharim's ongoing absence concerned the church. So two of LLDM's high bishops paid the couple a visit at their home in Ensenada.
2: Yes.
3: A meeting, Sochil secretly recorded. The bishop started the conversation by blaming Sochil for everything. We weren't the ones committing any delinquent behavior. They stated.
4: Lo
3: countered by saying, We all know what the root of it all is. To Sachin was present throughout the meeting, but the bishops addressed Sharim, and Sharim only. For El the husband is the sole head of the family, so it was his job to decide everyone's fate, bow their heads and return to the fold, or lose everything. <laughs> Sharim tells them he needs time to talk it over with Sochi because his faith and his heart have been shaken. He believes her. He's hurt by the pain caused to her and he feels betrayed. One of the bishops tells the couple that the solution is in their hands. The bishops end the meeting by saying they do not see the couple as enemies of the Church, or as apostates. They promise to keep the bridges open. And to talk again in two weeks or a month. Even though the parting words were comforting, the tone was threatening. The promised meeting never came. Instead, Sochil and her daughter are kidnapped. In the fall of 2016, shortly after the bishop's visit, Sochil gets a call from a church official to tell her that finally, Nason has agreed to speak with her. And her pastor.
4: My aunt, her husband, they came to pick me up because they were going to take me to go speak about this with the minister. That's what they told me.
3: But Nason was nowhere to be found.
4: And um, as soon as we go pick up my daughter, you know, they take my phone. I couldn't even be with my daughter. My aunt takes my daughter. She has her with her the entire time.
3: Sotil and her daughter... With her aunt and the rest of LLDM's representatives, are driven from Ensenada to San Diego. When they arrive, Sochil's passport is confiscated by her aunt.
4: And then we go to San Diego and we're sitting at a Denny's.
3: At the San Diego Denny's, her aunt makes a call. On the other end of the line is Asalia, Nasson's groomer and secretary. The same Asalia who ushered Sochil into Nason's office when he summoned her back to Guadalajara. After becoming the apostle. She hears Nason's voice in the background, but she's not allowed to speak with him.
4: I'm thinking like, oh I understand that I fucked up so bad they don't even want to talk to me. The servant of God doesn't want to talk to me. I I messed up.
3: This is the second time the church came to her. The second time some powerful high up tells her this mess was all her fault without even letting her explain anything. So Satchel begins to see things differently.
4: I'm seeing what pieces of shits they are. I'm like, hey, you guys, this doesn't seem like it's new. And where is Nason? Why is Nason disappearing? Why doesn't he just, you know, talk to us? And everything started to connect.
3: It reminded her of a scene from one of her favorite movies.
4: I was a big fan of The Godfather. And that scene to me was very... Carleone for me, very, very godfather to me, and I was fucking scared. I was like, these fuckers are in some weird, powerful mafia, it's all families, they protect the business, they protect the name, and I am now fucked over because of my life of abuse and knowledge of of Nason. When
3: Sochil seemed scared enough, she was let go.
4: They dropped me off at my house and I was told, given particular instructions, that my husband had to go back to church. If not, I was going to go to hell. He was going to go to hell and my daughter was going to go to hell.
3: Even after her kidnapping and the bishop's threats and the godfather's scene, Sotil was unsure about what to do. She tried to convince her husband to go back, to return to the flock and be done with it.
4: My husband was essentially like, you keep going there, we're done. Because I cannot, with all of this, it's too much. And he thought my daughter is potentially in danger.
3: Xochitl so is forced to make a choice. Hell on earth with Nason, or eternal damnation with Sharim.
4: And I told him, no, like, I want to be with you, and I would rather go to hell altogether, but so long as we're not separated my breaking point was my husband, somebody who loves me truly, that in my subconscious, deep down inside, this person has never hurt me. This person would never hurt me. This person loves me. And maybe, maybe this is wrong.
3: And at that moment, Xochitl decided not to play nice anymore. Her family had already shunned her. Her aunt, her colleagues, and closest friends from LLDM All her brothers and sisters in the faith had turned their backs on her. The only two people left standing by her side were her husband and daughter. Sochil knew how the church operated. She had worked close to Nasson for years. She knew about the double finances, the unpaid labor, the abuse of young girls and boys, and the tax evasion. All criminal behaviors institutionally aided and abetted by the church. And she had evidence... At the very least, she knew where to tell the police to find it. So she decided to give La Luz del Mundo a taste of their own medicine.
4: Thank you, Brian, for, for having us. And it is much more about just the apostle. It's about an institution, a corrupt institution, that enable this um, apostle, so-called apostle, and help him commit these crimes. And it needs to stop.
3: On our next episode, we explore how La Luz del Mundo became such a ruthless organization, fully protected by the powers that be and untouchable in Mexico. Sacred Scandal, La Luz del Mundo, is a production of Exile Content Studio, in partnership with iHeart's My Cultura podcast network, and is hosted by me, Roberta Garza. Produced by Sabine Jansen with the help of Stella Emmett, Reynolds Gutierrez and Ana Isabel Octavio. Written by myself and Monisa Henricks. Research by Roberta Garza. Additional reporting by Florencia González Guerra-Garcia. Engineering by Hugo Mendoza and Sabine Jansen. Sound design by Pachi Quiñones. Original music by Patrick Hart. Edited by Ryder Alsop, Maribel Quesada-Smith and Rose Reed. Executive producers are Rose Reed, Carmen Graterol, Isaac Lee, and Nando Villa. Daniel Batista oversees audio at Exile Content Studio. Our executive producers at iHeart are Giselle Vances and Arlene Santana. Sacred Scandal was created by Menaline Bartley and Paula Barros. Special thanks to Sonic Union. For more podcasts, go to the iHeart Radio app or whatever you listen to your favorite podcasts.